Well, good morning to you all. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to John 3. Our opening reading will be from John 3, though in our message we're going to be in a lot of places. So you will want a pen handy, and uh, you will want to be prepared to write. We are going to be reading from John 3, verses 1 through 10. Familiar passage. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Let's pray. Our Father, we take joy in being able to call you our Father. We take joy in the fact that we get to come into your presence, that we have peace with you. We have a hearing with you, that you listen to us, you give us access. And we know that is because of Christ, and so we praise you for Jesus Christ, our mediator, our redeemer. And Father, as we come this morning, we ask for your blessing on our time. We have a lot on our minds. We've just discussed together a very heavy topic, and it won't leave us quickly or easily. Father, we want to thank you again and praise you for your mercy to Austin and to all of the Lunderstats. Father, we know that this life is brief and uncertain. And so we praise you for this gospel, for this salvation that we will look at today. And I ask you, Father, that you would work in us by your Spirit as the Word is proclaimed, as we discuss this crucial topic of salvation. I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would draw our attention to you, give us great hope in you even this morning, that you would work in us to sanctify us even by means of these words proclaimed this morning. We look to you. We look to your word. We pray that you would bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week's message was on Romans chapter 9, and uh, we made some very strong statements, actually read some very strong statements from what uh, Paul says there in Romans chapter 9. We said hard things like election is according to God's purposes. We said that he saves based upon who he is and not because of any particular merit resident within us. And so it was a, a, a strong message pointing out 
the sovereignty of God in salvation, that God is at work in accomplishing salvation. And I want to say this morning, and the reason we're preaching on this topic this morning is because statements like those found in Romans 9 don't paint the whole picture. They don't address the whole aspect of salvation and how it happens and what it is. They don't tell the whole story. In, in that passage, in Romans chapter 9, Paul was talking about what goes on behind the scenes in our salvation. He was talking about what was in the mind of God, about his own purposes, the things that he was doing. And so discussing those behind-the-scenes topics might seem a little philosophical or it might seem a little bit irrelevant to us in the situation that we find ourselves in now. And so today's message is designed to discuss the totality, or nearly so, of salvation. We want to make practical the theological things that Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 9. And so we want to bring that discussion into the practical realm of where you and I live. And so we want to ask the question, how does God's sovereignty and salvation actually work itself out when a person comes to faith in Christ? What does that look like? We talked about the theology. What does it look like when it happens? Or another way of putting it, how does Paul's doctrine of election show itself in my conversion? And so that uh, being kind of our background, those being sort of the questions we want to address, I want to talk first of, all, first of all about what we see, what you and I see in salvation, what we perceive, what has been our own experience. First of all, we hear the gospel. So here we're going to call that the gospel call. That once upon a time, someone in some form brought the gospel to us. And maybe it wasn't once upon a time. Maybe it was many, many times. Maybe we had grown up with it or, or uh, a friend was faithful to share over years or whatever it might be. Someone brought the gospel to me. Someone shared Christ with me. Someone evangelized me and evangelized you. And so we'll call that the gospel call. We, we heard the gospel. That's the first thing that we recognize, that we perceive about salvation as someone shared with me. The second thing that we perceive is we turn to Christ in faith. That's faith and repentance. Someone shared, I believed. Now, I personally didn't believe the moment my friend shared with me. I didn't believe the next day or the next day, but it wasn't long before I trusted in Christ. I turned to him and believed in Christ for my salvation. And that's faith and repentance. I'm going to talk more about both of those later on, but that's something that we perceive. Someone shared the gospel, I believed. Those are elements we can all look to, we can all see. And then thirdly, we grow in our faith, which is called sanctification. This is something, again, that we all perceive. We recognize this, that, that God works in my life, that over time... Having believed in Christ, I now see change coming about in my life where I begin to love the things that he loves and I begin to hate the things that he hates. And I might wish sanctification happened more quickly or less painfully or something like that, but nevertheless, we perceive. This is something we see in our own lives and in the conversion of people around us. We are sanctified. We grow in our faith. So those are aspects of uh, of salvation that we perceive, that we see, that we are aware of. We can look, and even if we had never read the Bible or never heard this explained, we would recognize those aspects of salvation. Well, we can go secondly into some other areas, and these are areas that are unseen, and yet they are undisputed. Aspects of salvation that happen behind the scenes that I don't see. I don't, I don't necessarily perceive those things happening either for myself or someone else. And the first one that we want to talk about very briefly is in John chapter 3. We, we just read this verse, and that is where we are born again. It's, it's regeneration, God making us alive. And so that's why in John 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Now, sometimes with some people, they might be able to explain exactly when that happened. They, they perceived it. But my guess is most people don't know that exact moment. Most people can't point to that time. And yet none of us who are Christians would deny that regeneration must happen, that you must indeed be born again in order to be saved. And so it's perhaps imperceptible to us, and yet we all agree that that is there. And so that is being born again. That is regeneration. And second thing that is perhaps unseen uh, to us and yet is nonetheless undisputed amongst Christians is that we are declared just before God. It's justification. And justification is not something that we see. It happens, as it were, in the courtroom of heaven. And of course, going through Romans, we've talked about justification extensively. But back in chapter 3 of, of Romans, we, we, uh, Paul says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift. We are declared righteous by God as a gift to us. Well, how does that happen? Well, he goes on to say it is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that it's, we're redeemed in Christ. And that's how righteousness can be credited to us. But how is it that that righteousness can be ours and we know that it's ours and it belongs to us and not just out there somewhere? Well, Paul goes on to say that it is received by faith. And so these things go on behind the scenes. We don't get to peek into the courtroom of heaven in our personal experience in our lives. And yet as Christians, none of us denies that we are justified by grace through faith. That is a, a thing that, is, that we cannot perceive, and yet we all agree as Christians that it goes on behind the scenes. And then thirdly, we become children of God. That's the doctrine of adoption. We, we don't know exactly when that happens. We can't point to it and say, see, I've been adopted. Here's my new birth certificate. We don't have that. That's behind the scenes kind of stuff, right? And so it's what Paul mentions in John chapter 1 and verse 12. It's Paul. I, I said Paul. I meant John, of course. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the doctrine that says, by faith in Christ, we are made a child of God. He is our Father. That was not the case before. But when we are saved, He becomes our Father. We become His child. It's a unique relationship. And so, again, that's not something that we can see in our lives. It's not, it's not something that we can perceive, and yet we all agree, Christians would not deny that we are adopted as his children. So we've looked at what we can observe in salvation, that if you ask anyone about salvation, they would describe to you, well, someone brought the gospel, I believed, and then God changes my life in sanctification. But there are other things that go on behind the scenes, but that nevertheless we all agree on. And that is regeneration, that we are born again. It's justification that we are declared to be righteous before God. And it is adoption where we are made His children. But again, I said the purpose of today's message is to give an overview of the entirety or nearly the entirety of salvation and how salvation happens. Theologians would call this something of an ordo salutis, the order of salvation. What, what's a fuller description of what is happening when we are saved? And so I want to give that fuller biblical picture. And as a result of that, we're going to be in numerous passages. So I, uh, I, uh, I encourage you to grab your pen, be ready to write. The first one we're familiar with, that someone shares the gospel Someone brings the gospel to us. That's what we might call the outward call. The outward call. Now, I know in the first point I called it the gospel call, and that's on purpose. Let's call this the outward call. Someone brings the gospel to us. Someone obeys the Great Commission that says, go and make disciples of all nations. And someone comes to us, and they share the gospel with us. They evangelize 
with us. They bring the gospel to us. So first is someone shares the gospel. That's the outward call. And that raises a question. And the the question has to do with the fact that more people are called outwardly than actually respond in faith. So the question is, why are some people, why are more people called outwardly than actually believe and become saved? That's the question we need to address. We all know that not everyone obeys the outward call. If that were the case, we would just go around giving the outward call everywhere and everybody would be saved. But of course, we know that is not the case, that actually many hear the gospel and they don't believe. They don't respond to that outward call. And why is that? Well, that brings us to our second point we're going to discuss, that God draws us to himself. And this would be the effectual call. I distinguish between the first one, which is the outward call, someone sharing the gospel. And inwardly, you have this effectual call. And there are numerous passages that we could go to in discussion of this topic. But let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we could read and work our way all the way through Uh, The whole chapter, or 35 through 45, would be a profitable discussion, but I'm going to focus in on just a couple of verses. For this one, I want to read verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here we have Jesus speaking in John chapter 6 speaking to a large crowd that has followed him across the sea. And he says to him, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's a strong statement where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That, That sounds like, that sounds forbidding. Well, there are a couple of objections raised to this. The first objection that's raised to this, and really the one I want to deal with for the most part, is that if you will turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, keep your finger in 6, we're going to be right back there. But if you will turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, so later in the same gospel, you will hear Jesus say that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. So in chapter 6, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then six chapters later, he says, and if, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so the objection, the way this is understood is that the words that Jesus says in John chapter 12 reinterpret for us and sort of negate what he said in, back in John chapter 6. That in 6, he made a very strong statement. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But in chapter 12, he says, but when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So the limitation's removed, right? Well, how, how do I deal with that objection? How do, I, how do I understand that? First of all, I want to say that's not how we interpret literature. That if you'll notice the beginning of chapter 6, it's the Passover, In the beginning of chapter 12, it's the next Passover. It's a year later. A year has passed since Jesus said those words in chapter 6. Not only has a year passed, but six chapters have passed. And it would be inappropriate for us, even just in interpreting literature, to grab words that are spoken a year later, six chapters later, in a book that's not that long, and bringing them back to reinterpret, to make verses, words in chapter 6 say the opposite of what they seem to say in that chapter. That's not how we interpret literature. The other statement is just too far removed. And that brings us to our second point, my second reason for believing that John 12 doesn't address the same issue as John 6. That's that the context of John 12 is entirely different. 
It's entirely different. John chapter 12 is the end of Jesus' public ministry. Everything after that is going to be private. Everything after that is going to be heading towards the cross. And actually what happened in John chapter 12, to this point Jesus has been ministering to the Jews, and here he is at the Passover, and some Greeks had come to the Passover, and they want to see Jesus. Jesus has been rejected, rejected, rejected. And now he's at the Passover in chapter 12, and some Greeks show up. He's been ministering to Jews primarily. And now the Greeks show up, and they ask for Jesus. And when that happens, the disciples come and tell Jesus. And in in verse 23 of chapter 12, it says, Jesus answered them. That means the words that Jesus is going to speak have something to do with the fact that the Greeks have shown up to see him. And this is what he says. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That those Greeks showing up, wanting to talk to him, is like a gong sounding. That we've just moved into a new level, a new phase of Jesus' ministry. It's a sign of the end of his public ministry and that he's moving now towards the cross. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's moving towards his death now. He's moving towards the cross. And in light of that context, and just a few verses later, in verse 32 we read, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's saying, I've been ministering to Jews. That's been the majority of my ministry. And now some Greeks have shown up, and suddenly there's a change. And he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in verse 32, he describes what that means. I will be lifted up, meaning on the cross. And when that happens, I will draw all men to myself. Not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Not just the one people, but all peoples. So that he will save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so... The context of chapter 12 has its own context, has its own explanation, its own understanding, so that when Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, all people to myself, he's talking about the fact that he's going to draw Jews and Gentiles alike to himself. Now go back a year earlier. Go back six chapters earlier. Back to John chapter 6 and verse 44, where he's speaking in a very different context. He's speaking to a crowd that's been following him, and yet it's because he fed them. They don't like the things he's saying, but they want him to feed them more. And in verse 44, it's in that context that we read, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But I want you to notice the next part, the, the remainder of the verse, And I will raise him up on the last day. There are two parts to this To this verse, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then the next part, and I will raise him up on the last day. The person who is drawn is exactly the person who is raised up on the last day. It's just a couple of words apart, the him and the him. The NIV has them. They do that for for other reasons, but it's, it's the same word in each case. I will draw him, and then that same exact person I will raise up on the last day. There's no reason to see that there would be a difference between the him who is drawn and the him who is raised up on the last day. And if we are going to say that, no, Jesus draws everybody, God draws everybody to himself, then this verse, among other verses, would make us say, therefore, everyone is saved. No one misses salvation because the one who is drawn by the Father is raised up by Jesus. There's a one-to-one correspondence. There is no slippage there. This call that God issues is effectual. It happens. It comes about. The thing that it calls for is the thing that it accomplishes And Jesus raises him up on the last day. This is what he says there in verse 39 of John 6. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing 
of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Every single one given by the Father to the Son is raised up on the last day. Jesus loses nothing. This call that God issues, which is not the external call of me sharing the gospel or you sharing the gospel or someone outwardly speaking the gospel. This is an inward call where God works to draw the person to himself. What it calls for is the same thing that it accomplishes. We looked at this already at Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the kind of call that unfailingly results in the person coming to himself. There is no slippage. There is no loss. And so this is the effectual call. But of course, salvation is not done there. We see that God makes us spiritually alive, which is a doctrine we call regeneration. Go back to John chapter 3. We've been in 6, but go back to John chapter 3, where we are reminded of Jesus' words. In verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, Jesus states very clearly, you have to be born again in order to see the kingdom. And of course, Nicodemus in verse 4 argues with him a little bit, uh, raises some questions. And in verse 5, Jesus comes back to the point. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In short, a person can see or enter the kingdom of God only Once he has been born again, he has to have been born again, and then he can enter. Then he can see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God here is not talking about heaven. The kingdom of God here is talking about salvation. It's talking about what it means to be a Christian. When John uses the language of kingdom, he's he's differentiating between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And he's rescuing people from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of God. He's talking about salvation here. And he says that before a person can enter or even see the kingdom, he must be born again. He must be regenerated before he can even see the kingdom of God. And when he talks in verse 5 about being born of the water and the spirit, He's talking about a fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation that God himself would sprinkle us clean and would give us, put his own spirit within us, would make us alive. It's another description of regeneration. If you want to look at that later, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26 points that out, that God is purifying a people for himself. He's purifying us as if it were by sprinkling water on us and making us alive by putting a new spirit within me. That's regeneration. Well, so that raises the question, how can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, who is hostile to God, who is unable to please God, how is that person able to believe? The answer is that God regenerates that person. God makes that person alive. God washes them clean, enables them to see and enter the kingdom of God. God himself enables them to believe. John says this a little bit differently in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1, where he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has already been born of God. So God regenerates us, and we turn to Christ in faith. This is where faith and repentance fit in. He regenerates us. We turn to God in faith. Go back to John chapter 6 and verse 37. John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to the Son, come to him. Meaning they believe. They believe in him. But faith is truly a gift from God. We can see that elsewhere. Faith is a gift from God, but that doesn't mean that God believes for us. We are not pawns. We are not inanimate objects. He's not just batting us around and moving us around. He gives us faith. He grants us faith. And yet it is not God who believes. We are the ones who believe. Theologian John Murray has said, God alone regenerates, but we alone believe. We alone believe. How are we to understand that? Well, I think in terms of this image that comes to mind. The nature of a mammal is to breathe air. We can only stay underwater so long. We can only absorb so much oxygen without our lungs. We've got to have our lungs. And so the mammal's natural state is to breathe air. And when we're exposed to air, we breathe it. Now, I know of at least one example of a, uh, a, a young boy who was trying to prove a point, and I don't know what point it was. It doesn't prove many points, but he thought he was going to hold his breath just to demonstrate that he could. And so he held his breath, and he kept holding it. And I would quit. I just don't have the will to keep holding He held it until he did what? He passed out. Well, what do you know what happened when he passed out? He resorted to his real nature as a mammal, and he began to breathe, right? Because when he came to his senses, meaning when he was unconscious in that situation, he responded by breathing. And the same is true of you and of me. We are God's special creatures that he has made. We were created in the garden with relationship with the Father. That's our natural state. That's how we ought to be. But then sin entered the picture. Darkness enters the picture. And we, we don't really want God. We, we hide from God. And you can see that from the, from the time in the, the earliest days in the garden when they went and hid and then they tried to cover themselves up and then they blamed other people. And there was, there was disunity. There was lack of harmony for the first time between God and man, which means they were no longer acting according to their nature. There was something twisted and something bent and wrong and sinful. And of course, that's the way you and I are born with that twist with that bent, with that sin. But when God makes us alive, it's as if He restores us to respond to Him as we truly ought to. We are now alive to Him and we no longer have those things which are, which are in the way, the, the roadblocks keeping us from faith in God, those things that are in our own heart, that rebellion, that suppression. He sets that aside and He makes us alive. He regenerates us and we respond like that boy who finally fell over by breathing. We respond always by faith in Christ when He regenerates us. So when we are made alive, we are no longer hindered by spiritual death, by that enmity, by that hostility to God that results from the fall. Instead, we respond in faith every time to God. Every person he regenerates responds in faith. All whom the Father has given to me will come to me. Will come to me. Real quickly, faith consists of three things. It consists, first of all, of knowledge. I've got to know some things about the gospel in order to believe the gospel. I've got to know some things. It, it consists, first of all, in knowledge. And second of all, it consists in conviction or assent. That not only do I know some things, but I believe those things are true. It's not a fiction. It's actually true. Jesus actually did die on the cross. Historically. And He did die on the cross for sinners. And He was actually raised from the dead on the third day. Those things are actual truth, not just mythology. So I need to believe. I need to, 
you're not supposed to use a word to define a word. <laughs> uh, give assent. I need conviction that that thing is true. And then thirdly, trust that that thing is true for me. That Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins. And I'm a sinner. And I need him to pay for my sins. I need him for me. I need a savior. And so I trust in Christ. I believe in Christ because I need him. And I find salvation. So that is a basic understanding of what faith is. It's knowing things to be true. Knowing those things, believing that they are true, and then trusting in them for my own salvation. Of course, I've said faith and repentance, and my purpose today is not to make a fine distinguishing between those two, but to say that they are the flip side of the same coin. That when you turn to Christ, you are turning away from your sin. When I turn towards the north, I'm turning away from the south. And so, repentance has to do with that change. Now, over the short term, immediately, I may not be able to see any results of repentance, any fruit in keeping with repentance. But over time in the Christian life, you will begin to see fruit of that repentance as we indeed walk with God. So, we are regenerated. We respond in faith and in repentance. And then next, God declares us righteous. Justification. He declares us in the courtroom of God to be righteous before Him. We spent quite a while looking at, at Paul's very hard words that he has in Romans chapter 3 about what we are like. He said, he said, all people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we looked at that and we we understood that those things are true of us, but why did Paul want to dwell so deeply on the truth of our sin and how deeply it goes in us and the fact that it spares nobody? Why did he want to do that? Well, he says that it's so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There is no exception. There's no exception. But in light of that, in that situation, in that passage in Romans chapter 3, and I encourage you to go and read Romans chapter 3 after our time is over. But he paints that dark picture. He wants us to understand we are accountable to God. We are guilty before Him. And there is, there, there's no exception. And then he brings the stunning good news. The amazing, the otherwise impossible good news that we read about in verses 21 and following of that chapter, where he says, But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul says that justification is by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That we were all guilty before God, but in Christ there is justification before God. Sin is done away with, sin is forgiven. And righteousness is granted to us by faith in Christ. And so we pause here as we are making progress through our message today just to think about the fact that that is the best news there could ever be. And that is crucial news for you and me. There is no other way to be right before God than through what Jesus Christ has done. And so my encouragement this morning is that you would not just know those facts, that you would not just know that, they, that those things, that that's a story, but that you would believe it's actually true and it actually happened and Jesus actually died to pay the sins for sinners, that he actually was righteous, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised to give new life to all of those who have faith in him. And that you would respond in realizing I need that. I need that. And you'll trust in Christ. Next, God makes us His children. This is the doctrine of adoption. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. 
And so we are. God has adopted us. We who were rebels at enmity with him in hostility. He has made us to be his own children. Now we have examples in our own congregation of those who have been adopted. And here you have a child who has no claim on this family. There's no relationship, maybe. There's no familial claim. There's no expectation that on the child's part that he will inherit anything from this family or be taken care of. There's no commitment until the parents make it so. And when they take the steps to make that happen, suddenly that child now has a claim on those parents. That child has now been brought into a new family. And there is that relationship and there is that expectation. There is that care for this child as your very own. And we Christians have been adopted by God into his family. And over time in this adopted relationship, the adopted child will eventually take on the mannerisms, take on the values and even the customs of the parents. If the child is adopted young enough, they will have your accent. They will, they will do things like you do things. And the same is true with us and God. When he adopts us and makes us his own, over time we take on his mannerisms, as it were. We take on his values. We become more and more evidently his children. And this is the process, this being made more and more evidently his children, is the process called sanctification. And this is where God works to conform us to the image of his son. We call it sanctification. John continues on. We read in 1 John 3, look at verse 3 there. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The child of God begins to look like the child of God. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. There's been a change. I delight to honor God. I want to obey Him. I want to do what He says. I want to look like Him. I want to have His mannerisms, His values. And the reason the Christian does this is because of the work of God in having saved this person and in the work of God ongoing as the Spirit works in you to change you, to conform you to the image of Christ. He has given the Christian a new heart with new desires, a desire to obey God. He has put his spirit within the Christian to give that Christian a power over sin that he never had before. And he's given the Christian a new worldview in Christ so that the Christian sees and values everything differently. In fact, God is so powerfully and effectively at work in our sanctification that he keeps us to the end. This is a doctrine called perseverance. He keeps us to the end. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24, where Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself, start that again, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will sanctify you. Peter puts it a different way. And keep in mind, this is to the last time. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Christians are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. They are being guarded by the power of God through faith. God is at work preserving His own people. He's at work in them by His Spirit to, to cause them to persevere in a life of faith and repentance. We still wrestle with sin, but we continue. We, we repent and we come back. We are kept in a state of persevering grace with God so that Jesus could say, of everyone that the Father has given to me, I lose none. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus doesn't lose his people. This is a doctrine sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. The, the gracious spirit of God works lovingly and powerfully in us to sustain us in our faith in such a way that we continue to walk in faith and repentance towards God throughout life. 
the Christian will persevere because God keeps him to the end. We started off with the question, how does God's sovereignty and salvation actually work itself out for the person who comes to faith in Christ? How does it actually work out? We looked at the things that we can perceive. We look at things that we can only perceive by reading Scripture and putting together the understanding of how salvation works. But the the biblical understanding, the full biblical picture, understanding of how salvation works is a masterpiece of God's gracious and free work to save helpless sinners. He, he rescues us from our rightful end, the one we have earned, which is judgment, which is to bear the guilt, to bear that penalty for our sins in, in an eternity outside of the good presence of God. And he has worked to free us from that. And so, Christian, God graciously brought someone to you to share the gospel. And it may be that I'm that person today for you. And God used that situation, that person, that proclamation of the gospel to issue his gracious, effectual call, drawing us to himself. And then he miraculously regenerated us. And he granted us faith and repentance. And in what is the greatest feat of grace, he freely justified us by faith in Christ, taking our sin and guilt and placing it on Christ and giving us instead his righteousness and his life. By free grace, God adopted us to be his own children. And his grace isn't finished there. He continues his saving work on our behalf by sanctifying us and continuing to sanctify us in such a way that he causes us to persevere to the end. And so the title of your message today is no exaggeration. That salvation is truly a miracle of God from start to finish. It's nothing he owes us. It's nothing we could have accomplished. It is his miraculous, divine work to redeem sinners like you and me. And so, there, there are more ways we could parse this out and we could talk about some things here and there. But God is so gracious, freely gracious, accomplishing His purposes when He saves sinners like you and me. And so I, I rejoice in that because I, I'm, getting, I'm getting older. And as I get older, I'm observing more and more about myself just how much I did not deserve to become a child of God. And you may be out there and, and maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe you, you don't know the Lord and you're maybe understanding this gospel for the first time. The call to you is trust in Him. Believe in Him. Where else are you going to go? Where else will you find hope? Where else will you find salvation? Will you carry your sin always? Will you bear your own guilt, denying that it's there? Or will you trust in Christ and find Him to be a perfect Savior for you as well? Let's pray. Father, this this salvation that, that we get to walk in is amazing. And when I look at your word and I see how active you were in accomplishing it and I see how, how I would have messed up my part had I been given one. I rejoice in your saving work. I rejoice in the miracle that is salvation. And really, we only talked about those things that happen here on earth. We didn't even get to glorification. Where there, there will come a day when we will be raised to new life, not just inwardly, but in a new body. We will have resurrection life in a resurrection body, in a new heavens and a new earth. 
we, we will get to experience the fullness of your glory and the fullness of you. And we look forward to that day. We anticipate that day. We anticipate what it must be like to be raised bodily into your presence in a world where sin and grief and the effects of sin have been done away. Father, we, I'm in awe just thinking about that. But I thank you that here we are with you at work in us, accomplishing your good purposes, working to sanctify us, as your word says, working in us to sanctify us to the end so that we will persevere. Father, we owe everything to you and we, we praise you for your mercy towards us. We glory in your name and we revel in this salvation that is ours in Christ. Father, may we look to you often. May we remember these truths often. May we give you thanks and may we praise you often for this incredible salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up front who would love to pray with you. You can bring your requests and pray with them and and, uh, they will continue to pray for you. Otherwise, listen to these words from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you're dismissed.